If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I have some phrases, and I imagine it would only take a couple of them before you recognize what they have in common. For example, I'm all in. Giving it all I've got. I'm going to leave it all out on the field. I'm going to give 110%. All these phrases, and there could be many more, they do have one kind of underlying common theme. It is a phrase that we would use to describe total commitment. A way of saying that whatever activity we are engaged in, whatever priority we are, you know, we have, uh, whatever action, we're going to give, we're going to give all of ourselves to it. We're going to see see to it that we we give every part to fulfilling our obligations. Then there's another set: half-hearted, dialing it in, just getting by bare minimum. All these phrases also have something in common, right? It's the same general topic as the other one, though perhaps with a little bit different motivation and energy to it. To use those phrases is to describe actions that are not in total irresponsible. In other words, it's, it's not that we, we don't fulfill our commitments or obligations, but to use those phrases is a way of saying, I'm going to do just enough. I, I, I'm, I'm going to give just enough effort. I, I'm going to engage in just enough activity so that I get the job done. And if, so, if somebody were to, to agree to do a job for you, what would you rather have them say? I'm all in or I'm going to dial it in, right? Which, which one would you rather have? you got somebody who's going to do work on your home. You want them to say, I'm going to give you 110% or do you want them to say, we're going to see what we can do to just get by. There's an old preacher joke that kind of describes something similar And it would describe it as the distinction between being involved in something and being committed to something. Maybe you've heard this before. It is the difference in your breakfast food between the eggs and the bacon. The chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Right? You heard this before? Chicken chicken doesn't have to go all in, right? The pig, however, all in. My guess is we've probably engaged in both of these kinds of responses, right? My guess is we've done stuff where we gave it all. 
where we really worked hard, we gave every effort, we were, we were 110% committed. And we've probably dialed it in before too, haven't we? We've probably done something less than our very best, but we did just enough to kind of get by with it. I mean, that can be true in our relationships, maybe in, in a marriage or with parenting or work situation or church life. In fact, I think perhaps this sometimes can describe what is the challenge of trying to live the Christian life. I mean, at times I think we'd like to think that we're all in, right? I think at times we'd like to say, yes, we're, we're 110% committed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my all for the sake of the gospel. I, at every level of my life, I want to say I'm committed to living out the gospel. And yet... It doesn't always play out, does it? Our life doesn't always look that way. It doesn't always look like total devotion. In fact, sometimes our Christian faith can be a bit more like a hobby than a calling. Our hobbies are important to us, right? We can often spend time and money on them, but it's also something we do when we have the time. It's a weekend event, right? When all of our other obligations are through, then we'll engage in our hobby. I wonder if sometimes we don't, unfortunately, allow our Christianity, our commitment to Christ and His gospel to be more like a hobby, something we get to on the weekend, if there's nothing else competing for our time. Romans chapter 12 presents us with a different picture, though, of the Christian life. Those those initial verses, verses 1 and 2, they really serve as like a thesis, transitional statement, but also kind of a thesis statement, a main point for what the rest of the book will unpack. This is one of among many verses that we have, in particular in the New Testament, that describe an important reality, and that is the call of the gospel to salvation is also a call of the gospel to surrender. In other words, not only is there this, this great definition and description in chapters 1 through 11 about what the gospel is and what the gospel does to us and does for us, now we get into the gospel's demand. That may already be language that you are uncomfortable with. Even using that kind of language to say that the gospel demands something of me. And yet, I think the New Testament bears this out. I mean, Jesus himself said that if if you want to be my disciple, you've got to die and take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like dialing it in, right? In fact, Jesus said, once you put your hand to the plow, you don't look back. He even made extreme and striking statements like, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother and father. 
I'm not even going to explain that one. Parents, you're going to have to explain it to your kids. All right, good luck. No, I mean, I would at some point. We're just not going to do it this morning. But I mean, these are the kinds of things that Jesus says about what it means to follow him. But you get into, into Paul's letters and you find similar language where he, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He talks about about now I'm dead to trespasses and sins and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He even has this simplified life motto of sorts. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Even at the end of his life, he said... I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. I've been used up in full, in total, for the sake of the gospel. I think the New Testament demands of us a certain understanding, a balance, if you will, of what some theologians and Bible commentators have said it like this, of a balance between the This is going to be all nerdy, all right? You ready for this? Okay? The balance between the indicatives and the imperatives. So my grammar people out there are nodding their head. The rest of you haven't thought about grammar since you were 16 or like, "Mm, what? No? I don't think we studied that. All right? So the indicative being statements that describe something, imperatives being commands that demand something. The New Testament has both. Romans 1 through 11 has given us all kinds of indicatives. It has described for us what is this great work of the gospel on our behalf. Now as we get into chapter 12, Paul turns his attention to imperatives, commands, expectations. The first two verses are, are really, again, just kind of like a summary foundational statement. The rest of the book, in particular from chapter 12 through chapter 15, Paul's going to hit a lot of issues. He's going to talk about gifts and service in the church. He's going to talk a lot about relationships, relationships with other believers, relationships with weaker believers, how you relate to the lost world. And this one, as I've already said, is going to be tricky. How do you relate to those in positions of authority? It's it's not going to be a catalog of all of the responsibilities of Christian living, but it it will encompass a pretty uh, holistic picture of what, what does it look like when Paul says, I am to present my body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean when it comes to these, these responsibilities and relationships and priorities. So, that, so this morning, we, we, we make an important turn. You never thought we'd even get this far, did you? Right? You always wondered. I even wondered, are we going to be stuck in Romans 9 through 11 forever? Right? I mean, you kind of feel that way. It is, it is a challenging, that's an understatement, part of Romans. But here we are, some two and a half years later, right? Here we are, at what may be one of the most famous verses in the book. We have, you know, we have a few of those, all of sin fallen short of the, you know, the glory of God. God demonstrated His love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If I were to ask you, quote to me, verses from Romans, my guess is 
You may not get it all word for word, but you're probably going to get 12, 1 and 2 in there somewhere, right? Some parts and pieces of it. It is a significant verse. It comes at a significant moment in the structure and the development of the book of Romans. That, that, that key transitional word, right? In verse 1, I beseech you, therefore. This, this is like the this is like the, the supreme therefores of all the therefores. I mean, this not only encompasses everything that Paul had just said in the previous verses, meaning that grand articulation Paul gave us at the end of chapter 11 about God's transcendence and His uniqueness and His omnipotence, the God to whom are all things and for Him are all things and through Him are all things. What other response could we make to such a God? to offer the entirety of our lives to Him. But this therefore goes all the way back to the beginning. It takes us all the way back to the argument that Paul has made beginning in chapter 1, painting for us that picture of the, the devastating depravity of mankind to the grand work of the gospel and, 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 and important features and facets of it. And now now Paul is going to say, as a result, since all of this is true, then this is the life that the gospel calls us to. So this morning, that's what we turn to. We turn to these first two verses. Because of their weight and significance, and because there's a lot of words we need to make sure we get through, it's going to take us a couple of weeks just to get through two verses, all right? Say, Pastor, I, that's, that's nothing new, all right? That's kind of what it has been the entire time. You've been here 10 years, all right? You always say stuff like that, but which should tell you, then I have no intention of, of changing that, all right? There's no intention of not doing things this way, but these verses in particular do require time, if for no other reason, not, not only it's that they are profound and important, a critical transitional text in the book, and then foundational one, because this is a familiar text. And what can happen with familiar text? We assume we got that, right? Yeah, 12, 12, 1 and 2, we got it, we know this one, this one we understand. Well, maybe we should make sure (laughs) that we understand exactly what this verse, these verses are saying, in particular because Paul is definitely saying these are the result of the gospel. And so, in, in, these, in these verses, Paul is the natural consequence of the work of salvation. He exhorted these believers in Rome to offer their whole lives in service to God. And so, I think that is the expectation of us. As a result of what is God's gracious saving work, God has done something by grace. It's not something that I'm doing now to to pay God back for what He did for me, but it is definitely the result of what is God's good grace toward me. The result of that good grace is to yield my life wholly unto Him, a whole life devoted to God. So what does it mean then to be fully devoted? So we're going we're gonna to look at some qualities here. You don't quite have blanks there. I mean, you've got a bunch of big blanks, right? Uh, to fill in, so you might have to write out a couple of, a couple of these uh, phrases here. So what, what does this mean 
Well, number one, to live a life of devotion, a devoted life understands mercy. This this is the appropriate place to begin, by the way, to begin with the language of mercy. Now, before we get to that, I want you to note something else, beginning in verse 1, when Paul says, I beseech you. That's not a word you use every day, right? Well, I mean, maybe some of you do. If you do, let me know. I'd love to hear how you normally work that in to a you know, conversation, right, with your children. I beseech thee, right? I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. You probably don't use that every day. And the word, the word beseech, because it is kind of an old, you know, older kind of term, that maybe doesn't ring with the intensity the word has. Some other translations use the word urge, Perhaps even better would be the word exhort. Now, unfortunately, there are some translations that might use the word plead. I plead with you. I think that takes us in the wrong direction. Granted, there may be times where we, with great intensity, urge, beg, plead with somebody to do something. That's not, that's not the intent of what Paul is saying. When Paul says, I exhort you. This is Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving divine revelation. In other words, you might as well just chalk this up as a command. When the apostle Paul says, urge and exhort, this this is not optional. This, This is not saying, if you get around to it, if you have time on the weekend for it, all right? When he tells these folks in Rome, when he says, I beseech you, exhort, I I urge. This this is a strong a term he can use without actually just coming out and using the word demand. (laughs) But we don't don't want to mistake the language. That's kind of the intent. And and what, what is he beseeching? Well, jump over the mercies part for just a moment so you get the feel of the verse. I beseech you, therefore... Brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. So the key phrase would be this, that you present your bodies to God. So that, that would be the main phrase there, with everything else being descriptive. Living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, reasonable service. These are, these are all descriptors of what is this first phrase, that you would present your bodies. We'll, we'll get to that, all right, next, next week. But just as a simple description, when Paul says, present your bodies, he means not just your physical, external self. He's using body in this context to say everything. There's no square inch of your life that the gospel, that God, through Christ, in the Spirit, as a result of the gospel, does not own. That's, that's what he's getting at, the, the totality of my life. There's, there's no part that is reserved. <laughs> there's no part I keep from him. I remember having a man, this was many, many years ago, trying to justify what were his questionable business ethics. These were, these were the words he spoke to me. I was, 
I was just a teenager at the time, and we're talking many, many years ago, but he was in a group talking to teenagers. I don't know why he felt like this was a good thing to say, but he said, y'all need to remember business is business and church is church. And dumb is dumb, all right? And that's what that statement is, all right? I mean, I didn't say that. I did think it, all right? But, that's, but I even thought, as a teenager, what? In other words, you're saying there's one set of ethics, there's a way to live life in this context, and a different way to live life in this context. I, I would even challenge you to find me a verse taken out of context that would give us that kind of idea. Present my body. He means in full, the totality of it, every part of my life comes under the ownership of what God has done. Paul himself even says, I, I do not own myself. This is a paraphrase. I've been bought. We've been bought at a price. Okay, so with all that in mind, though, notice this first feature. That being the main phrase, he then says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That could be anything, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the love of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the wrath of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the holiness of God. Now, granted, all these would be fine motivating things, right? We would do well to remember God's holiness, to remember God's love, to remember God's justice and judgment, right? All of these things should play into our minds, but it's interesting that this is the foundational, motivational language. When he's getting ready to say, I should yield in total to God and His gospel, every square inch of my life comes under His ownership, and and what is the foundational motivation? His mercy. His mercies. Now, I, I want to do a bit of textual stuff here. I, I know I often pick on the NIV, and it's about to happen again. All right, so if you've got one, I don't, it's not to make people feel bad. If you've got an NIV, fine, okay? It's nearly inspired version, and that's good, all right? No, I, okay. It's not, it's not my favorite, though it is legit. Scholars have used it. Mark Dever would preach from it. Okay, so, all right. Anyway, it's fine. However, in this context, I don't know why they've done this. If you have an NIV, it does not say, by the mercies of God. It says, in view of God's mercy. Every other major translation, meaning New American Standard, English Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, uh, Holman Christian, uh, King James, New King James, they all have exactly the same phrase. By the mercies of God. So, okay, pastor, is this, is this just you being cantankerous, curmudgeonly, you know, that whole thing that just makes you so sweet and lovable? Is that, is that really what this is? you just kind of picking on them? Well, may, maybe to some degree. I mean, at the end of the day, it's mercies of God or God's mercy. It all encompasses the same thing. But I think the words are intentional. When Paul says the foundation the, the, the fuel, as it were, for my obedience and surrender and submission to the gospel is described as the mercies of God, the manifold mercies of God, the, the many, the multiple. 
In other words, the term in the original language is in the plural. And I think that's fitting given what we have talked about for nearly two and a half years. Some of you weren't even here when we started, right? Two and a half years ago, working our way through Romans. Quite frankly, what other phrase does justice to the gospel that has been described for us over these last two and a half years, over these last 11 chapters? What else does justice to this language but to say this is a description of the mercies of God? To talk about going all the way back again to that devastating portrait of of mankind. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Our, Our mouths are like an open grave and the only thing we deserve is God's just and righteous punishment. But God, by His grace in Christ, has made a way whereby we can be made right with God, where He allows His one and only Son to bear His wrath against our sin on the cross, brings Him back from the dead. And God, as an act of His great grace, does this magnificent exchange. Jesus takes my filth and my sin and my unrighteousness, and God judges Him for it to the point of death. And in return, I get the righteousness of Christ transferred to my account. But that's not all. I am given God's grace so that now I'm no longer a slave to sin, but now I am a slave unto righteousness. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this gospel is mine and mine forever. The Holy Spirit has been given to me. And that Spirit resides in me, telling me that I belong to the Father. That same Spirit intercedes for me. And this great God is doing a work so magnificent and so large in scope that it goes all the way back to the very beginning. And that God whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image and the likeness of His Son Jesus. Jesus Christ, justifying us, sanctifying us, ensuring that one day we will be fully glorified and that God in His mystery and majesty and profound work has elected us, has decided based on nothing but His own grace and mercy to save us. This is what Paul has been saying for 11 chapters. And you mean to tell me that only one little singular word describes it? I don't think so. This is the mercy of God. And it is profound. The profound mercies of God. I think this is our problem very often. John alluded to it. We so often become comfortable with what in many ways is the scandal of the gospel. What is the scandal? That you and I are wicked beyond comprehension, save for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That I'm saved not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, not because God looks back and says, ah, that was a good choice. I picked the right man for my team. He looks back and says, there's nothing lovely or becoming about me, but instead, as an act of His mercy, this is God's manifold action on my behalf. Again, here's why I think that language is profound. Because I could certainly talk about the mercy of the gospel where God did this one thing, but really God did a bunch of stuff, right? God did a bunch of stuff to make sure I was no longer dead in my trespasses and sin. In fact, I'm I'm reminded of a verse that we studied for some time right after Hurricane Florence. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, here's what I love then about making this connection, because does anybody here think Paul knew Lamentations 3? That's a good bet, right? It's a good bet if you've memorized it, he did too, right? In fact, Paul could write his own translation of the thing, which he often did with the Old Testament. From memory, by the way, I can't believe these things are not connected. That the the majesty of this explanation and now application of the gospel reminds us. This, therefore, based on not the mercies of God only in what He did for you in the past, but this is just the mercies of God. Mercies that then are new every morning. God's mercy meeting you at the beginning of each day. And listen, you all know this as well as I do. Look at your neighbor, look at yourself, look at your pastor. We don't just need mercy, we need mercies, right? Look at yourselves, right? I mean, how how much mercy do we need? We need it in the plural. That's what we need. And even now, as those who have been transformed by the gospel, I still need the plural of God's mercy. Now, all of this is significant because, again, this is the foundation of what's going to be a profound demand upon us. I beseech, I urge, I exhort you, therefore, brethren, on these multiple manif- you know, manifold mercies of God that are, that are going to keep coming and coming and coming, I, it is on that basis you present yourself without reservation to God, His gospel, and His glory. What other motivation could there be? Because this is important. It's important because this, this, I think, keeps us between two extremes. One extreme would be license. There's this theology out there, by the way, this hyper-grace theology, this theology that says, I just need to believe intellectually certain ideas and I, then I got my fire insurance, and I am good, right? So don't, don't, don't hinder me with your commands. Man, that's the Old Testament, all right? I'm, I'm under grace. Now, we are under grace, but we're just not under hyper-grace, meaning it does, it does matter. Do we really think everything I just described as the gospel, God did for you, for me, so that after intellectually assenting to a few of those truths, we can then go on and live like the rest of the world? Could that possibly be God's intent for the gospel? Surely not. So we want to avoid license on the one hand, but we also want to avoid legalism on the other, right? Taking it too far. Taking it to the point of not recognizing that you and I are not yet complete in our sanctification. We we are God's workmanship created for good works. Ephesians 2.10 That work just isn't finished yet. We're still being molded and fashioned. The only difference is we're the type of clay that often resists the molding of the potter. (laughs) We like to jump off the wheel sometimes. No, we still deal with sin and unrighteousness. 
Oddly enough, now as believers, that indeed is an act of our will. I mean, the, the way in which we as believers actually have a kind of free will, as opposed to what we talked about before you become a believer, which, which really is not the same kind of language. But now we do make choices. We recognize that at times those can be sinful, disobedient, dishonoring. So the fact that Paul is going to ground all that he's going to talk about, this profound call of the gospel on my life, the fact that he's going to ground all of this in the mercies of God. Mercy. It keeps, it keeps me from making too much of license, all right? I, I'm not going to take advantage of that. I'm not going to take it for granted. God is, has not acted toward me in a way I deserve. To speak of His mercies is to, to describe receiving, getting, benefiting from something that I've neither earned nor deserve, and in fact deserve and have earned the opposite of what I get. That's really what I've earned. So, so I, I, don't, I don't want to engage in that license, but I also don't want to engage in in legalism, I don't, I, I don't want to make these, these hard and fast expectations where I take the commands of Scripture and bring them to bear in ways that perhaps don't reflect what Scripture says and expects. And in essence, making our Christian devotion really a way to pay God back for what He did for us. So this is the balance that Romans 12 and on will call us to. In the rest of the text, and we'll get to it next week, We'll get, to, we'll get to the rest of what, what Paul is getting at when he describes this kind of wholesale, wholly devoted life. Perhaps in preparation for that, we would, we would do well then to go ahead and think about our, our own devotion, our own submission, our own surrender to these things. Have I? I, mean, can, I can I honestly look at my life and say... Yes, I am, I am cooperating in the power of the Spirit under God's grace and mercy with the work of the gospel that, that the gospel would be brought to bear on every facet, inch of my life. Is that the case? Or am I dialing it in? Is it half-hearted? Is it the bare minimum? What is the nature of my commitment then to the outworking of the gospel that has been worked in to me. So I, I would challenge us here, not just this morning, but uh, and certainly this time will we'll be open. I'll be down front. I would pray with you. You can come and pray here. Perhaps you're not even sure what would be the nature of your own devotion. Maybe this is something that God by His Spirit needs to then bring clarity to your heart and mind about. I would pray about that. But even more than just beyond, say, this, this particular morning and service and response time, just to give serious thought to that this week, is there any part of my life that I, I keep trying to move out from under the gospel? Is there any part of that I want to take back for myself? Any part where I tell God, no, can't have this, this is mine I'll give you this, this, and this. I'll give you this day or that time or this event or this study or nope, but this, this, and this, and this. It's mine. Because really the call of the gospel on my life is God saying over all of it, mine. For Him, 
through him, to him, are all things. Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Is that true about me? Of course, there may be some here who don't know Christ as Savior. My appeal to you then would be that it would begin by trusting in what the first 11 chapters describes, and that is a great and glorious gospel that can take you from sinner destined for judgment to saint redeemed by God and set apart unto Him. If you come confessing that you are a sinner, believing Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that you would ask God to save you based on what Christ has done, that you would trust in then the working of the Holy Spirit to bring you unto salvation. You can be saved today. I'll be down front if you'd like to know more about that. If after the service you'd like to know more about that, I'd be glad to talk with you. How would you respond to the goodness and mercy of this gospel? Let's stand and I'll pray. Father God, we do thank you for for your gospel. We thank you for your good news, for the hope of Christ, crucified, resurrected. We recognize then, God, the call of that gospel unto salvation also is a call unto surrender. And, And so, Father, we do. We want the gospel to be brought to bear on every part of our lives, knowing but that, that, is, that is the way we walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And that, that is the life for which you have created us and designed us. We thank you for that mercy, those mercies that not only have saved, but continue to strengthen and empower us for service. And so, Father, we trust our lives to you, praying that you do in us, by your Spirit, what needs to be done that we might continue to be faithful followers, fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in His name we pray. Amen.